Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? This week, I'm standing in a place sometimes labeled the lungs of BC's Lower Mainland. That mysterious moniker is a clue to what we're focused on this week. Wildfires, but not quite the kind we're used to hearing about. Northernmost Siberia, historically one of the coldest places on the planet, is now baking. Its vast forests on fire. That's right, Siberia is on fire, and so are parts of Canada. There's a smog warning for millions of Quebecers today. Environment Canada says smoke from a peat fire in the Kamouraska area is causing poor air quality. Warnings in Quebec as smoke from a fire in the Kamouraska area chokes the sky. What these two events have in common, aside from the fury of the flames, is the source of their fuel. Peat, as in peat moss. But remember, peat comes from bogs. And climate change is flipping those bogs from unsung friend of the environment to a nasty foe. Now bog boosters are finding ways to detect those fires, mitigate the damage, and maybe just restore these soggy lands to their better nature. Now given what you just heard, you might be surprised to hear that just a couple of decades ago, scientists didn't even know peat could burn. Merit Turetsky, whose Twitter handle is Queen of Peat, had to learn this the hard way when she was doing her PhD. And she's on the line with us now. Hi, Merit. Hello. So tell me the story of how you discovered that peat could burn. I made this discovery by sheer accident. So I was right at the end of my PhD research, and I made a very long journey from my home base in Edmonton all the way out to northern Saskatchewan for my final visit to my field sites. And when I walked into this field after this very long journey, I discovered that all of the plots that I had been studying for years had burned down a few months ago in a wildfire. And I was shocked. Not only did I lose a lot of data and I I shed a few tears, but it introduced me to the fact that peatlands in Canada actually burn. And this was very new information to ecologists and to wetland scientists around the world. Now, I, I should tell listeners that you were the Canada Research Chair in Integrative Ecology at the University of Guelph, but you're now the Director of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder, which pretty much suggests that what you thought was a failure has actually skyrocketed you up the academic ladder. Well, it's been wonderful because, you know, I still study peat and I study the Canadian boreal wilderness, but that one shocking incident in my life launched me into this whole new avenue of research, which is wildfire ecology. And it's been a wonderful story in my life, even though at the time I cried and, you know, thought it was a real setback. It, in fact, has been a real avenue of discovery for me. What kind of reaction did you get from the research community when you reported this? You know, scientists are trained to be 
very resistant to new ideas. We're very critical of each other. That is the basis of scientific review. So when I started presenting information as a young scientist, hot off the presses, you know, data on peatlands in Canada burning, I was met with quite a lot of resistance. But in this short period of time, a few decades later, we now know that Canadian peatlands, peatlands around the world from the Arctic all the way to the tropics are indeed vulnerable to wildfire. And peat burning is one of the most important environmental topics, not only to climate change, but also to environmental hazards, air quality, etc. Now, when I think of peat, I think of the peat moss that you buy from your garden. How would you describe it? Peat actually is very, very common. It blankets most Canadian boreal forests and Arctic ecosystems. And it is dead and decomposing biomass. Much of it is made of plant material, but some of it is made of animal and microbial biomass. And it's preserved in our ecosystems naturally in places where the ground is cold and wet. And what's important about peat, not only because it adds to the beauty of our Canadian landscape, but it also regulates the Earth's climate. So for thousands of years, this has been a natural stockpile of carbon, removing carbon and keeping it out of the atmosphere. So in fact, here in Canada, we have a lot of peat and we should thank peat for keeping our climate cold. Well, okay, well, let's thank peat. But <laughs> tell me how peat stacks up against trees, which I think people often think of as the great suckers of carbon. That's right. Peat, much like tree biomass, is accumulating carbon from the atmosphere through photosynthesis. It does accumulate carbon more slowly than most tree species would. But when you lock carbon up in peat, you can have faith that that carbon will be preserved in the soil, not just for decades like tree biomass would be, but for centuries, maybe even thousands of years, if we can keep peat cold and wet. So there lies the great challenge because peatlands around the world are actually getting warmer and drier as a result of climate change. And that threatens their ability to continue to regulate climate through carbon sequestration. Right. So tell me more about that. As we know, peats, bogs are catching fire. Why is that such a concern? Well, peat under its typical pristine state, cold and wet, is this wonderful self-adapting system. It actually has properties that keeps itself cold and wet. But when disturbed, whether it be through an anthropogenic land use like drainage or road construction, or whether it be anthropogenic climate change, when peat becomes warmer and drier, it actually turns from a material that resists fire into quite a flammable material. And that's what we're seeing on the landscape in Russia with temperatures exceeding 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The Arctic is literally has a fever and it is literally on fire. This is not material under normal weather and climate patterns that should burn. But in fact, through remote sensing, we're watching it burn in places that are not really known for historical wildfires. Right. And I, and I want to get back to the peat burning in the permafrost. But I just want to ask you first, what is it about the way the fires burn that make it such a concern for climate change? 
Well, you know, it's a different kind of fire. I think when most people picture a Canadian wildfire or any kind of northern wildfire, they picture the type of fire that Bambi was running from in the movies, you know, flames licking up into trees. And we certainly have those kinds of crown fires in Canada, but peat fires are an entirely different beast. These are creeping, slow-moving ground fires. It can consume a lot of biomass in our forests and in our peatlands, and it's very difficult to fight these fires. It's extremely time-consuming, and it's extremely expensive. Well, for want of a better term, what kind of stuff is it releasing into the atmosphere? When these creeping ground fires burn, it's very inefficient burning. And so not only does biomass burning under those circumstances lead to carbon dioxide emission, which is a very important greenhouse gas, it also releases carbon monoxide, it releases methane, two gases that trap heat in the atmosphere much more strongly than carbon dioxide does. And it also releases a lot of particulate matter. And this is the stuff that gets into our lungs. It can cause respiratory disease. It can trigger asthma attacks. So ground fires that burn peat tend to be associated with very poor air quality, We can see associated increases in the records of hospital visits, of people being impacted with lung conditions. We know that there is a link between these kinds of climate hazards like peat fires and human health. So it's it's quite troubling that this is increasing around the world. Let's go back up to the north again. I almost have this image of the ice being on fire as the peat under the permafrost starts to burn. How vulnerable is the peat in the north? So we're seeing a decrease in the resiliency of peat that has kept peat preserved in the Arctic and in the boreal biomes for thousands of years. I think we're at a real tipping point now where strong heat waves like we're seeing this summer are going to become more common. We will see more peat fires in response to those strong heat waves. If peatlands continually dry and continually catch on fire, all of that old carbon is becoming more vulnerable to being re-released back into the atmosphere. So what had been a green or a natural solution for regulating carbon can actually become another main emitter of carbon back to the atmosphere. Those are the kinds of vicious circles that we're trying to avoid. But there's also the idea that it can act as a fire break. So peatlands used to be used by firefighters all the time as a fire break. I've heard many, many stories of, you know, hot and tired firefighters fleeing and seeking refuge for a few hours in our riparian wetlands or in our peatlands. And it was a source of groundwater. They could get their gear a little bit wet and cool off and be safe. That is no longer the case. These ground fires are making these ecosystems become more of a flammable ecosystem, certainly not a fire break. So I've heard about this term zombie fires. Can you tell me what they are and what kind of challenge they represent when it comes to peat? We know about zombie fires, mostly from stories of northerners 
who have detected and taken pictures of smoke diffusing right through snowpacks. So what zombie fires represent are these holdover conditions when fires burning late into the summer season go underground, they burn down into deeper peat layers and they continue to smolder, oftentimes right through the winter, right underneath the snow. And when spring comes and the snow melts, sometimes these zombie fires can pop back up to the surface, reemerge to the surface and reignite as a new fire. So zombie fires are really interesting from a climate perspective because they represent momentum in the system. A severe fire year, for example, under the extreme heat waves that we're seeing this year in Siberia, of course, affect land and affect carbon emissions in that extreme fire season. But due to these zombie fire conditions, that may actually carry over to affect next year's fire season as well. So that represents a lag or momentum in the system that we frankly do need to understand much, much better. This is all quite unusual. I haven't even thought about these things before and also does not augur well for the future of areas with peat bogs in them. Merit Turetsky, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Merit Turetsky is the director of the Institute of Alpine and Arctic Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. Now, the problems with peat fires might be new to me, but there's something Chad Thomas knows only too well. He's been fighting fires since he was 16 years old. He's a member of the Taltan First Nation and the CEO of the firefighting service Yukon First Nations Wildfire. During 2018's particularly dry summer, he fought a destructive peat fire. Evacuees from a remote northern B.C. community are wondering if they've lost their homes. Wildfires forced them to leave Telegraph Creek on Sunday. Then last night they got news that 27 structures were destroyed in the flames. That's a loss of nearly half the village. Nine fires are burning. It was a devastating loss for the community where Chad had a fishing camp and spent most of his summers growing up. Some of his friends and family lost their homes. Chad, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, tell me, what was the first clue that you had as you were heading to Telegraph Creek to fight this fire that, that something really bad was happening? Well, um, when I was about an hour, hour and a half north of Deese Lake, which is where uh, everybody was evacuated to, you know, you couldn't see 100 feet in front of you. The smoke was so thick and you could feel the wind and you could feel the weather. It was really warm, very dry. You know, all, all of my indicators that I've kind of picked up through my career were on high alert, just knowing that we were going to be walking into a very volatile situation. And when you did arrive, what did you see there after the area had been evacuated? What did it look like? There was a lot of low-level smoke, so the, the visibility was very low. But as soon as you rolled in town, you could see about half the town was hit by a very intense wave. What was your reaction when you saw that? Like, it was tough, obviously, having very close ties with the Telten community, being Telten myself. And, you know, the Telegraph Creek area is very special for our people because that was our meeting place. But that was where we've all met 
every summer at a certain time of year to harvest salmon. So it was very hard to see. But I think uh, at the time, we were more focused on doing what we could to save as many homes as we could. You know, we had to push our personal feelings aside and do what we could do to do our job. So what is it about the way those peat fires burn that, that makes them so challenging to put them out? Well, you know, it really depends on the area. Sometimes your forest floor can go above 10 feet deep. It makes it very hard to extinguish. You know, the fires can creep underground and pop back up beyond your control lines. And, you know, where where you'd see a lot more of handguard um, type of attack um, down in the south where people can use uh, hand tools to dig control lines around. We can't really do that up in the north because you have to deal with the forest floor. So we try to dig deep with water and uh, high pressure pumps to extinguish the fire's edge. So water is kind of, and a hose is kind of your way of of pushing down the fire. Is that right? Yeah, it would be that and air attack. And also uh, we do a lot of burning, right? So bogs are supposed to have water underneath them. You already talked about how the the fire was beneath the ground that you were walking on. So tell me what it's like to fight a fire on the ground that you're walking on, if it's burning underneath you. Yeah, like in a boggy area, it does make it very trying to extinguish the fire because usually you're up to your knees in, in wet swamp. And the fire, when it comes in and it burns intense, it just burns that top little layer. But some areas that used to be predominantly a lot more wet, like these boggy areas, do dry up certain years and that makes them especially more volatile i understand though that there's also squirrel dens or or hidden caves that make it even more difficult so that was very unique about that fire as well there was a lot of little hidden caves along the cliff valleys which uh became visible after the fire and yeah like there was there was a fair bit of squirrel den so i mean that's a common thing like uh, that's what we always teach our firefighters to make sure that they velcro up their pant legs and you know a lot of firefighters even uh, go a step further is to put a bunch of electrical tape bottom of their pant leg connecting that to their boot as well as duct tape kind of whatever they have that way if if they do accidentally step into a squirrel nest or a, a deep little tree rooty area that they won't burn up their legs because there'll be fire below Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of times, you know, you'll be walking in an area where the fire goes through and you're just kind of like walking along. You accidentally step into an ash pit that uh, looks cool, but is actually quite hot underneath because it'll be two, two to three feet of ash that you just fall straight in. Has that happened to you? I mean, it has happened, but yeah, like I said, I was properly wearing my PPE and my boots were a little warm and my clothes were a little hot, but, you know, you just... uh sweep it off and carry on. So after the, the fire is out, that isn't the end of things, is it? The, the, because the ground is more destabilized. What happens after the fire goes through town? Yeah, I mean, like the, the tree roots are, are burnt out. So, you know, that was one of the first things that uh, our teams did was we went across the town and we dropped a lot of what we call danger trees. So we were doing a danger tree assessment around the community. And we were dropping the trees that were half burnt out up top and burnt out roots just to make the area a little bit safer for people to come in. But I understand that after the fire was put out, there, there was a landslide last year and a rock slide this year? Yeah, that's correct. So that's one of the big challenges that we were facing 
during our time there. And all, but also, I think that the folks that live in Telegraph Creek are kind of coming to peace with the fact that that's going to be a little bit more of the norm until that vegetation grows back properly and that erosion can really slow down. Um, you're going to be seeing those landslides, right? So that that happened uh, last year in 2019, and they just had another one this year. Chad, how do you know when you've actually fully extinguished a peat fire? What it really comes down to is size. So pretty much all of the large-scale fires that I have fought in the north, I've never felt confident that we put them out. And then the following year, we usually have what is called a restart. So that means when the fire, it looks cool, but basically winter looks like it puts it out because there's parts of the fire that are kind of still smoking up, but it comes down to dollars and cents and whether or not the government wants to extinguish the whole thing. Even in Telegraph Creek, the, the fire came back a year later. Yeah, it's a very common thing. Chad, if, if peatlands become more of a fire hazard as our climate warms and, and the peatlands dry out, how do you see the severity of northern fires playing out in the years to come? We're, we're already kind of looking at very intense wildfires right now. Um, you know, you look at 2017, worst fire season in the history of British Columbia, and then 2018 beat the records of 2017. I think what we're starting to see is a very common trend. But the biggest thing is that concerns me is, is the lack of resources that we really have to battle these fires, right? Here in the Yukon Territory, we have very limited resources and we're beyond our capabilities as soon as the fire gets big. Um, so it's a very difficult thing. I think we need to realize that this is the new norm and, and then we need to properly assess the situation. So, you know, I was just in Australia this winter and I talked to a lot of people that were affected by that disaster wildfire. And they were referring to the fires down there as super mega fires. I've never once heard that in my career until I went down there. And I think that we're, we're making terms up as we go along because it goes beyond our training for the intensities that we're seeing. Chad, I am glad that you're safe now. And would you please do your best to stay safe in the future? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Chad Thomas heads up the Yukon First Nations wildfire. He's also a member of the Talltown First Nation, and we reached him in Whitehorse. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Burns Bog used to be... That's Nikolai Karpun, research coordinator at Burns Bog near Vancouver. And he's hearing something in the air. He thinks it's a baby bald eagle, a fairly common sight in this vast urban bog created 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. This bog is evidence that the problems facing peat aren't just an issue in more remote areas. And Nikolai is here with me in the bog to talk about that. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Can you tell me why Burns Bog has been referred to as the lungs of the lower mainland? So yeah, Burns Bog historically was over 12,000 acres in size. It is a very active wetland. 
And so what that means is lots of carbon gets trapped into the soil. And all that carbon that gets cycled, that means that there's photosynthetic activity, which means plants are producing lots of oxygen and providing all that air for us to breathe in the surrounding lower mainland. Does it really provide that much a carbon storage for the city? Yeah, so when people think of carbon storage, they like to think of big trees and tropical rainforests. Uh, but those ecosystems, they have such a high turnover that any carbon that gets stored is released upon the death and breakdown and decomposition of the material. Whereas in a bog and other wetland ecosystems, there's not a lot of decomposition happening, which means that organic matter gets trapped and built into the soil and it piles up on top of each other. So what is the one thing you would like people to know about Burns Bog? I think just how lucky we are to have such a great ecosystem in our own backyard. All the biodiversity that we have there, there's over 175 bird species, either migratory or nesting populations. We have over 400 different plant and animal species. And yeah, just all the resilience that it shows, even with the human activity. We've been talking on the program about uh, the problem with peat bogs when they catch fire. And that's happened here too, hasn't it? All that peat that's stored in Burns Bog, that is all that organic carbon, is fuel when it's dried out. And the resource extraction that's happened historically actually led to the creation of a bunch of ditches in Burns Bog, which drastically lowers the water table. And without all that water keeping the soil saturated, it's very easily ignitable. And so once something does catch, it really goes up. Has it been getting worse in terms of the fires? Yeah, so ever since peat harvesting started in the 40s, uh, the disturbance regime of the bog ecosystem has shifted, which means that it's more vulnerable to disturbances such as fires. And many of the recent fires have actually been caused by humans. The most recent one, someone didn't put out a fire all the way, and it actually sparked and ignited underground, and then it blew up a week later. So uh, absolutely, it's getting worse. You just mentioned it. It, it. They thought it was out and it caught fire again. How hard is it to put them out in these areas and what does it do to air quality? Some of my friends who are firefighters, actually, they they dread fires in Burns Bog because it's weeks and weeks of constant, constant uh, soaking. And even once the fire is gone, the work isn't done. How did you get into the bog business? Um, so my house is actually right up the hill over there. I grew up in North Delta. Um, used to come into walks in the Delta Nature Reserve all the time as a child. We'd have little picnics. Um, and so much has changed even in my observable lifetime. And I just want this to be a place that I can take my kids one day. Nikolai, thank you. Thank you so much for talking today. Nikolai Karpun is the Research and Stewardship Coordinator for the Burns Bog Conservation Society. So we now know peat can be found across Canada and that peat fires are some of the largest and longest burning fires on earth. But as we've heard, it's hard to put them out. Now scientists are working on the ground and in the air to try to manage them. Our associate producer, Emily Rendell-Watson, is our resident fire communications officer. Hi, Emily. Hi, Laura. <laughs> Listeners are going to think I'm actually joking. <laughs> but you were a fire communications officer for Parks Canada. I was for a short period of time, and I did actually learn a 
ton about forest fires. But surprisingly enough, I wasn't super familiar with peat fires. And as I'm sure many listeners are finding, it's so surprising to hear how damaging they are and how what we normally do to fight fires really isn't working. And as one researcher that I spoke to emphasized, we really need to be paying much more attention to them. Smoldering fires or peatland fires are the elephant in the room. People are fascinated by flames, but they cannot forget about the smoldering that comes afterwards. It doesn't have a flame. It's not as visually appealing or fascinating, but it's a, it's a monster in the damage that it can produce. So that's Guillermo Rain. He's a professor of fire science at Imperial College London. And the sense that I really got from him is that it's really this race against time to figure out how to both detect peat fires and fight them. And Guillermo's research looks at spotting them before they can get way out of control. Well, how, how is he trying to do that? So he's actually developing this technology that will allow these fire management teams to see and sniff fires out. And they can do this from really anything that's in the air, so a drone or a satellite. And there's two different ways that they're trying to do this. So they're able to monitor the heat and radiation and also monitor the gas that's coming from these underground fires. And so apparently his technology can sense these 23 different chemical compounds that appear in fire smoke. And by doing that, they can assess this chemical signature. Well, that, that actually sounds something like a, a DNA test. I mean, what, what do they do once they have that information? Well, it helps them figure out if it's a flaming or a smoldering fire. And the reason that this is so important is Guillermo's trying to develop a warning about whether these fires are active underground. And he says that early detection component is so helpful in terms of how these fires are fought, especially because, as he told me, typically it's these flaming fires that get all the attention. One typical scenario that happens in Canada is that smoldering fires of the peat happen after a flaming fire of the trees. And it's quite difficult for firefighters, which are quite busy already fighting the flaming fires, to identify the hotspots that are being developing behind the flaming. They need, as we speak, help to guide them of where the hotspots are growing faster. Okay, Emily, it's one thing to, to detect the fires, and that's great, but you still have to fight them. So is there any research being done on that front? There is. So the truth is, is that we don't understand the behavior of peatland fires well enough. And that's what I heard from many of the the people that I spoke with. So now some federal and provincial researchers are actually lighting fires themselves in peat. What? Yeah, I know. It's a crazy concept in a controlled way, of course, just to see what happens. And Dan Thompson is is one of the co-leads on the fire experiments, and he's a forest fire research scientist with Natural Resources Canada. And he told me that they're actually testing this concept called burn to learn, which is fascinating because they're, they're actually able to study how the fire behaves during these experiments. So things like how tall it gets and what kind of smoke is produced. We're, we're really trying to understand that, that intersection between peatland ecology and the mosses and that fire behavior with the goal of what can we do that's ecologically sound, still within the natural variability of that ecosystem, but nudging it towards a less flammable state that sort of can be sustained in the current, in the future climate, all with the goal of having the, the smallest, most easily containable fires right next door to those communities. 
Now, Laura, what's really neat about the fire experiment is that they can try different things to see what's actually able to work best to nudge these peatlands towards being less flammable. So in one instance, Dan said that they tried actually thinning out the trees to see if that would help. And did it? Well, the fire seemed to spread about the same whether the trees were thinner or not, but the flames were smaller, so theoretically firefighters would have an easier time getting them under control. But the biggest learning they had was actually a total surprise. So the really open environments, those without trees, have that really soggy moss. That's stuff that you can you know, wring out with your hands or you'll get wet boots on. As these peatlands get more and more trees, that more shade adapted moss is actually drier, which is a little bit reverse of what you might think. So really an unexpected outcome, but a good one because we want to see the wetter, soggy moss, sphagnum moss it's called, And it actually soaks up so much water that you can literally wring it out like a sponge. And that's the stuff that helps to create these natural fire breaks. Right. But but there's another step after all of this. That is what happens after uh, a peat bog actually burns. Well, it can actually take generations. So 20 to 60 years for peatland to return to that soggy, wet sphagnum that's so important for fire breaks. And because of that, researchers are trying to figure out how to restore it faster after a burn. And one of those ways is moss transplants. Isn't that wild? It is. What an idea, transplanting moss. Yeah. And so researchers are actually taking these round disks of moss from healthy peatlands and transplanting them, moving them into burned peatlands. So they dig up the ground and they put these disks in and then they compact it. And then it's a waiting game. So... Sophie Wilkinson is one of the people who is who's doing this work, and she's a postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University in Hamilton and one of the leads on the project. Now that we also have to consider, especially because climate change is causing more severe wildfires, is that we want to restore these peatlands to a wildfire-resistant state so that if and when wildfire was to, to sweep through that landscape again, these peatlands could actually act as fire breaks where fire severity and intensity is reduced rather than propagate that fire across the landscape. Okay, Emily, so I do love this idea of moss transplants, but but it is act- has it actually been working to speed things up? Well, a lot of that's still to be determined, but Sophie did tell me it's looking promising. And the great thing is that all of these moss discs that they put into the peatland are the same size. So that makes it super easy to track how much they're growing and how healthy they are. And so far, they know that the transplants can survive in this new home of burned peat. And what's great is that they're actually growing quite a bit. But at the end of the day, Emily, we know that temperatures are going up. Peatlands are continuing to dry up. I guess the question becomes, is it actually worth restoring them at all? Well, in the immediate future, Sophie said it's really about keeping communities and infrastructure safe from these fires and, of course, from the toxic smoke that they emit. But that is a fair question, especially the element of whether doing this restoration work time and time again makes sense. And so I put that to Sophie and she told me that they do think it's worth it because they're restoring these natural ecosystems to what they're supposed to be doing to begin with, which is actually buffering climate change by creating natural fire breaks and storing carbon. Now that also brings up the question of whether we as humans should be continually interfering with these peatlands, to which 
Sophie pointed out that if we already have so much human influence on these ecosystems, in her view, we should be using that people power instead to get these restoration projects going. So interesting. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Laura. Emily Rundell Watson is an associate producer with us here at What on Earth. That does it for us this week. Thanks to our What on Earth team, associate producer Emily Rundell Watson, producers Sonia Biting, Lisa Johnson, and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our technician, and Althea Manasan, our digital producer. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.